John chapter 1. And beginning in verse 1. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. O God, be exalted. Unveil the Lord Jesus to us in his full majesty and glory. Change our lives as we see him. We ask for nothing less, nothing else. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. What is true? You ever thought about that question? Ever thought about the answer? I know you have. You've been made in the image of God, and there's something in you that yearns to know truth. That's because God is truth, He's truthful. You don't want to believe lies. You don't want to believe falsehoods. You want to know the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, then you will be my real, my true disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. There's something in you and I that wants to know the truth. When it comes to the message of the Bible, C.S. Lewis once said this, Christianity, if false is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. In other words, as one man put it, if Christianity is false, it holds no significance, but if it is true, it carries immeasurable weight. Now, truth claims abound in our society, in the Western world, the Eastern world, wherever you go in this world, truth claims are made. Muhammad once said, I'm searching for truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. The claims of Christianity are stunning. They're breathtaking. They're jaw-dropping. The message of Christmas is outlandish. What's the message? That the second person of the eternal trinity, was born of a virgin and became a man. And this one is truly God, truly man. Fully God, fully man. Jesus, as Colossians 2.9 says, is the fullness of deity in bodily form. That's a unique message. And that's an exclusive message. And that's where modernity if it was on the bus at all, gets off the bus. It won't go any further. And I understand that because to modernity, when we live in a pluralistic society as we do here in the US, the only heresy it seems is the claim made of exclusivity. We have the truth. No, 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 no. I have my truth. You have your truth. 
And in the realm of religion, it seems to work for some, but logically, it's inescapably untrue. In the realm of math, 2 plus 2 equals 4, not 48, as much as someone sincerely believes it. Just a thought. I have my truth, you have your truth. Now, the claim of Christianity is this. This is the truth whether or not you believe it. And some come to us and say, well, I'm glad you believe in Jesus. You find uh, meaning in singing hymns and even carols at Christmas time, but uh, that doesn't do it for me. Um, my religion is very personal. In fact, I go out into the yard, into the garden, uh, every Sunday or Thursday, it doesn't matter, and I sit with the plants and I think and then breathe in, and that's my religion. It's interesting, the plants, the, the plants never call you to repentance. The plants never say, uh, you're worshipping a false god. Uh, but there you go. I love America. I'm an American citizen by choice. And I love the freedom we still have in this land. And if you remember, America was founded on the principles of religious freedom so that no government tells you, this is what you shall believe or you die. Thank God for the freedom we have. It actually protects those who believe the truth as well as those who believe falsehoods. You know, you can believe any silly thing you like and not fear persecution in the U.S., at least for the moment. Because if the government says, this is the established religion, if you do not believe every jot and tittle of what they say, you're in trouble. And we, the United States, was founded upon the freedom of religious liberty. I love the U.S. Constitution. It gives us the legal right to be theologically wrong. It gives us the legal right to be heretics. You can start your own religion. Try it in California. You might get a following, you know. That's a threat in our time, that right we have. And how long we'll have it, I don't know. But America was founded on the principle of religious freedom. You can start your own religion here and even advertise it on national television. Boy, if you've got enough money, you can buy an ad at the Super Bowl. Millions of dollars spent, and you can do that. There's many parts of the world where that isn't the case. I appreciate, don't you, the freedom of the United States. The problem with this is that God doesn't give us the right to be wrong. That's because he's revealed himself. He's made known his word to us. And he has made himself known in creation. In those two things, God has revealed himself. He's revealed something of himself enough to condemn us by means of creation. We know there's a God. But we, to be saved, need more information. That's why we have the Bible. The Bible has shown us Not that we're saved by observing the sunset and believing in a God, but by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an exclusive claim, isn't it? There's salvation in no one else. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's an imperative, we must be saved, but we're not going to be saved other than through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's word is like a rock thrown into the theological pond. The ripple effects are massive. God is and God has spoken. We're accountable because of that. Back to the claims of Christianity. 
What if Christianity is true? What if Jesus is who he claimed to be? You remember in Matthew 2, we read of the wise men who sought to find Jesus in order to worship him. Do you remember that? And when they found him, that's exactly what they did. Let me read Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Those are startling words, knowing who they were saying it to. Herod. Verse 9, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Notice they didn't worship his mother. But the, they found the child with Mary's mother and they fell down and worshipped him. They carried out their desire. They came to worship and that's what they did. Now, theologians make a distinction between the person and the work of Jesus. Between who he is and what he did. And before there was any doing, before this Jesus walks, before this Jesus talks and forms a sentence, he's worthy of worship because of who he is. May I ask you, would you have done that in seeing that young child? It would have taken eyes that are more than the eyes of this world because this baby looked like any other baby. There was no halo over his head. If you were given eyes to see, you would have worshipped because he's God. He's Emmanuel, he, God with us. Only if you're given eyes to see would you have worshipped, and only if you're given eyes to see will you worship this day, true worship, in spirit and truth. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Note these words in the song, Hark the herald angels sing. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, please with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. I want to ask you today, can you see that? Only then can you truly sing, hail the incarnate deity. You see, it's not Christians who made up the concept of Christ being unique. It's Christ himself. It's his own words. You see, he did live to walk, and he did live to talk, and he said things, and he did things that staggers the mind. After feeding the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch, he said, I am the bread of life. After giving sight to a man born blind, he said, I am the light of the world. Before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. In teaching the disciples that he would lay down his life for the sheep, he said, I am the good shepherd. Not I'm a good shepherd amongst many, I'm, I'm the good one. And you remember these words, John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, 
and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, it's Jesus who said that. And Christians who believe him believe he's right when he says that. He's the one who said it. It's not Christians as a committee saying, let's put this proposition forward. Let's how many votes, see how many votes we can get and make Jesus unique. No, Jesus shows up and says, I'm unique. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was, I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8, 24. I and the Father are one. For many of these sayings, the Jews who understood their Bibles wanted to kill him. He was either the truth personified or he's a madman or worse. He prayed in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Glorify me. Imagine praying that. Do you know, no prophet of the old covenant. Imagine Ezekiel saying, as I go out today, glorify me. He'd be likely to be struck dead. But Jesus could legitimately say, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You loved me before the foundation of the world, he said. After rising from the dead, he said, all authority. What does that leave out? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. To quote C.S. Lewis once again, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing Lewis says that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else you'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. Let's go to John chapter 1 and verse 1 where we read these familiar words. In the beginning, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, get that, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, these are the first words of Genesis in the beginning. In Greek, anarche. Those are the first words of the Septuagint. Anarche, in the beginning. John was declaring something by beginning his gospel with the, with the very same words as the opening words of our Bibles, NRK, in the beginning. What did Genesis 1 verse 1, the first verse of our Bible say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John's commentary is, in the beginning, the word was already there. In other words, as far back in time as you can go, there's the sun waiting for you. There's the word waiting for you. 
The Word already was. This Word didn't have a beginning. He was there at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The word word here in Greek is logos. And that's a word pregnant with a lot of meaning. It was used in Greek philosophy and it meant reason, it meant intelligence, it could even mean logic. It didn't have the idea of personality, it was more a concept. That was all around in that day. And it's as if John took that word known by all around in academic communities and around the world of that day and he Christianized the word by what he revealed in the gospel. That's our world. That's our word. That's what we're taking. Logos. Jesus is the Logos. One man translated those words of John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was logic. It's actually not a bad translation. As far back as you can go, the word already was. This stresses the eternality of the Logos. He was already there. He was with God. Look what it says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So he's distinct then. He's already there in the beginning. That stresses him as eternal. But now we're finding out he's distinct. Pros, ton, theon are the Greek words. And it means with, but a more uh, beautified translation would be this. He was face to face with God. He was with God. So he is the word and he was with God. You know, you don't have fellowship or relationship with yourself. To be with someone is not to be that someone. And the Word was with God. There's a distinction. He is distinct. The Word is distinct from God. Verse 18 of this same chapter will say, He is in the bosom of the Father. He's at the Father's side. But back to verse 1. In the beginning, as far back as you can go, the Word already was. He was with God. And look at this. And the Word was God. Literally, the Word order is this. And God was the Word. In Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning is really speaking of deity. And this is repeated at the end of verse 1. The Logos, the Word, was God. Actually, Though there's not one single verse that outlines the Trinity. You can't say, well, let's go to Mark chapter 8 and this particular verse. There's the doctrine of the Trinity in that one verse. It's what we compile from all that the Bible says. But this one verse, John 1 verse 1, gives us two-thirds of the Trinity. Why? Two persons are addressed as God. And we know there's only one God. Hmm. One God, three persons. That's the biblical message of the Trinity. And two of those persons are outlined as God in verse 1. One God, two persons here. The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, is outlined elsewhere in Scripture. You won't have to read far in John to see that. Acts will tell us. Ephesians, and let's just start with Genesis to Maps. It's in there. But here, just in this one verse, two distinguishable persons are called God. God 
and the Word, but there's more to see. This Word, with God and God Himself, created all things. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. He's saying the same thing, but he's repeating it. As far back as you can go, he was there. The Word was. He was in the beginning with God. And verse 3. All things were made through him. What? We didn't get past the first verse of our Bibles without reading these words. In the beginning, God created. And now this word is outlined as the creator of all things. How many things? Most things? No, all things. All things were made through him, through the word. This puts him on a completely different level to anyone you can name. Name the name. Lionel Messi, Pelé. Okay, let's go out of the realm of sports. Abraham Lincoln. Name the name. None of them created all things. That's who we're dealing with when we're talking of Jesus. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That's mind-blowing. That's the claim of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, you're either taking people on a bus journey to verse 4 and beyond or else people are getting off the the bus at verse 3. Think about it. The claim is this Word always existed. He was with God, was God, and created all things. All right, you got that? Let's move on to verse 4. That's the message. He doesn't say, like, after 20 chapters, and I'm going to sneak this thing in. This is how his gospel starts. And we either understand that the rest of this gospel is all about the unveiling of this, this Jesus who is the Word, or else we miss the entire point. So what does Genesis, uh, John chapter 1, 1 to 3 remind you of? Well, once again, Genesis chapter 1 verse, 1, verse 1, the fifth word of our Bibles. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That covers it. I can't think of anything outside of the heavens and the earth. And John 1 verse 3 says it, all things were made by him. We're dealing with God himself. The Word created everything. Now, this is not the only place. Keep your place in John. Let's go to Colossians and let's weave some things in. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read these words. He is in the... He is, excuse me, the image of the invisible God. This is Colossians 1, 15. So there's an invisible God. He's the image of him. The firstborn of all creation. This is not speaking of uh, a title of time. He was never born in natural ways as the son of God. He always was. This is a title. That means he's highest in rank and he's heir of all things. That's what firstborn means. You can see that in the Psalms, in the life of David and so on. That's another Bible study in itself. He is in the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, highest one, heir of all things, of all creation, for by him all things were created, 
in heaven and on earth. There it is. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. King of England's crown is a borrowed crown. The president's office is a borrowed office. Doesn't matter where you go, there might be an emperor on the throne or some prime minister who's head of the nation. One day they will give an account to the king of kings and the lord of lords and the president of all presidents. He rules. By him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible. In other words, it might be invisible to us. Think about what they would have known in the first century that we are now aware of. Little microbes, little microscopic insects. Yeah, Jesus made all that. Hmm. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. What has God done for me lately, pastor? He's holding your brain cells together as you defy him. That's what he's doing. He's holding you together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the first one from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We're in Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's on another plane, isn't he? In the Logos, we have the concept of omnipotency. You ever heard that word? Potent means power. Omni means all. Put the two together. Omnipotent. All-powerful. And in the Logos, we have the concept of omniscience. Science is the word for knowledge, and scient, in that sense, is being used in that way. Omni means all knowledge. And so the concept of the Logos is that he's all-powerful and all-wise. And John is taking the concept of Logos and reshaping it, providing new definitions. Jesus is the eternal Logos. He's all-powerful. Or wise. Paul said it this way, or wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1, 24. Let me just quote it. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God, the wisdom of God. Psalm 104, 24, talking of Yahweh. O Lord, Yahweh, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So this word is eternal, and yet he's distinct. He's always been, and he created all things. And now verse 14. And now we get to Christmas. And the word became flesh. I read that this week, and I just thought, that is staggering, if true. And it is true. And since it is true, it's staggering. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. All brain circuits explode trying to capture this. The Word became flesh. J.I. Packer summed it up very well. The Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needed to be fed and changed 
and taught to talk like any other child, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Now, as God, he's omniscient, never learnt anything, but as a man, he grew in wisdom and stature. Mike Riccardi once said this, think of it, I'm going to read this slowly, here we go, the infinite, eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, almighty God takes on the nature of finite, temporal, dependent, mortal humanity into personal union with his divine nature all without changing or shedding his divine nature the unchangeable god becomes what he wasn't while never ceasing to be what he was he goes on sinful man had ruined ourselves by disobedience to god's law and our transgression against infinite holiness required an infinite punishment, eternity in hell under the wrath of omnipotent vengeance. No man could ever pay that infinite penalty, and yet no one but man could ever righteously offer an atonement on behalf of sin. He goes on, only God himself could ever atone for sin, and yet only man's sacrifice would be accepted on behalf of man. No one ought to pay but man. This is so profound. No one ought to pay but man. No one can pay but God. And so to reconcile man to God, God would become man. Jesus Christ is fully and truly man, and therefore he's able to stand in man's place, both to bear man's punishment and accomplish man's righteousness. At the same time, he's fully and truly God, and therefore he's able to bear the infinite wrath of God against our sins without perishing as we would. It is the height of divine wisdom. It's the very heart of the gospel. It's the most glorious of all of God's works. It's the miracle of miracles. What a staggering claim. God, the second person of the Trinity, entered into this world, born of a virgin, living a flawless life, sinless life, going to a cruel, rugged cross. And in our place, hanging for us, being crucified for us, and on the cross, the Father laid on him all the sins of the people of God, and he bore our sins in his body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. And he died in our place. And he suffered under the punishment of God that was due to us. Nothing was due to him except exaltation and glory and majesty and the worship of the angels. But there at the cross, he bore what was due to us. He was punished in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says, He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. All right, you've got your opinion. Pilate's had his opinion. Herod's had his opinion. The Jews have had their opinion. The Gentiles have had their opinion. My opinion is this. He's the Son of God. Up, my boy. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. 
It was the vindication that all that he is and all that he'd done was sufficient. He'd atoned for sin and he's raised from the dead and now placed in the place of all authority in the universe so that he could now say, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and on earth. Veiled in flesh, the God had see. Can you see it? Can you see him? Before you're quick to answer, just recognize this. Jesus was unremarkable, physically speaking. We read these words in Isaiah 53, verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No form or majesty that we should look at him. He wouldn't have been on the front cover of He's Got It magazine. No beauty that we should desire him. He didn't just walk around Nazareth and all the teenage girls just fawn. He looked like an average Jew. There was no halo over his head. Forget all the religious paintings that would portray him that way. Oh, I would notice him. If he was in a crowd, I'd notice him. Really, would you? If there was a picture, if there was a photograph taken of Jesus with the twelve, don't be quick to say, I'd, I'd be able to point him out. I don't think I could differentiate between him and Matthew. Well, there would be a special glow about Jesus, right? There'll be this thing, you know, that, hmm, there he is. No, 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 you got it wrong. That was, um, that was Judas. There was nothing about him, the way he walked. Oh, just the way he walks. He's got to be God in the flesh. You know what? The only way you could recognize him as who he really was, was God revealed him to you. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter said. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. If you understand he's the Son of God and the Messiah, God's been very gracious to you to open up your eyes. You would not know it naturally speaking. No form or majesty that we should look at him. His Godhead was veiled. He didn't look like it and a bit. He looked kind of average. You had a hard time picking him out. An average Jew. And yet, the fullness of deity is this Lord Jesus Christ in bodily form. It came out on the Mount of Transfiguration. Very few got to see it. There on the mountain, it was as if God for just a very brief time allowed what was true about him to be seen. And he rayed His his brightness was more penetrating than the sun. Think about this. Do you remember the conversion? I know you weren't there, but do you remember the conversion of Saul into Paul? He was on his high horse and Jesus knocked him off. Wooing, Wooing him off his horse, of course. But he was blinded because he saw the light. Now think of the one who created all things 
and how powerful the sun is. It's not the most powerful sun in the universe, but that's the one nearest us. And just because of our distance from the sun, we either live or die. If we're a million miles closer, we'd, we'd be beaten into a pulp by the sun and we wouldn't survive because of the heat. If we were a million miles further away from the sun, we'd freeze to death. How come it's just, just right? Do you ever worry about that? Uh, you've seen the report on Tuesday, we're liable to drift? No. Because the one who created everything sustains everything. And here's my point. Jesus created the sun. And saw, seeing the brightness of Christ, was blinded. You and I, we tell our kids, don't look directly at the sun, right? It's too powerful. How about the one who made the sun? If God, by the Holy Spirit, allows us to see the brightness of the Lord Jesus today, we'd be blinded. It took a miracle for Saul and then Paul's sight to be restored. But along the way, Jesus told Paul, who's boss? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. So, this Jesus cannot be compared to anyone in human history. He's the maker of human history. History is his story. This Jesus and if you've been given eyes to see him, God has graciously allowed you to see with your heart what could never be survived if it was shown you by your eyes. After the resurrection, he appeared to Thomas. Do you remember? The one who said, unless I see, unless I feel, unless I handle, I won't believe. Doubting Thomas, we call him. I was once in India preaching and at the end of the service in fact I was having lunch with the pastor of the church and I said so how long has this church been in operation and he looked at me like why are you asking I, it's like a question you ask isn't it how, how long has this church been here and he said well don't you recognize the name I said what he said church of Matama and I said yes I, 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 I can say that but what does that mean and he looked like you don't get it. This is the church of Thomas. Don't you remember the church history, young man? I was a young man back then. Thomas, the one who said, unless I see, I won't believe, ended up being a martyr. Church history tells us, no reason to doubt it, he became a martyr for the resurrected Savior in India. But before he died, he'd founded many churches, and this was one of them. I was preaching in a church that Thomas had founded. What a testimony to the glory of God. This one who said, unless I see, I won't believe, died for the resurrected Savior. And the church was still there. Thomas said, unless I see, I won't believe. After the resurrection, when Jesus appeared to Thomas, Thomas said this, my Lord and my God. Jehovah's Witnesses can't handle that. God, no. They just said he was 
like he was swearing. Oh my God. No. He recognized who he was. My Lord and my God. What did Jesus say? He did not say, you've gone a little bit too far this time. I appreciate your dedication. I appreciate your enthusiasm. But come on, Lord and God. No. These are Jesus' words. You can read them in John chapter 20. Thomas, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. I know we can't physically see Jesus today, but my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will so attend your heart and mind that you'll see what earthly eyes could never see, and you'll be able to sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Oh, holy night. The stars are brightly shining. It's the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine, oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, night divine, oh, night, oh, night divine. Ladies and gentlemen, this eternal word distinct from God is God and that word was made flesh and dwelt tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory we saw it we saw it the glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth and the message of Christianity is not to have an emotional reaction because Jesus and manger scenes and all of the trappings of that fills your heart. Oh, 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 no, get who he is. This is God manifested in the flesh. And either the wise men were doing something noble and right in worshipping or they're committing blasphemy. You should never worship anyone or anything other than God. And Jesus, not only there, but throughout his ministry, received worship. And in heaven, around the throne, the saints of God will be involved in worship of this Lord Jesus, singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Christmas is about a birth, but it's not the end of the story. There's a death coming. He came on purpose to live for us as a Jew, fulfilling the law, being the Messiah, righteous life of Jesus so so righteous that Jesus could look at his enemies and say which of you convicts me of sin I can't do that with my friends which of you commit convicts me of sin uh, I can I can that's my friends but Jesus to his enemies come on come forward which of you convicts me of sin what a righteous life and that's the righteousness of the believer. Because on the, cry, on the cross, the Lord Jesus absorbed the wrath of God due to us because of our sin. Our sin was laid on him and he suffered in our place. And for those who repent and believe this wonderful good news, 
The very righteousness of Christ is given to us, a righteousness that fulfilled every demand of holy justice. It's a flawless gospel. He takes away our sins. He gives us righteousness as a gift so that we can boast only in him. John, why should you or anyone go to heaven? My answer is I can't think of any reason at all except the gospel is the truth. That he bore my sins in his body on the tree. And he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Ladies and gentlemen, that's the message of Christmas. He came on purpose, sent by the Father. It wasn't like the Son is the loving one, the Father is this judging one. No, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That ladies and gentlemen, whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the Lord Jesus. All that he is and all that he has done, his person and his work, we say thank you for coming. In Jesus' name, amen.